0: Welcome to another edition of the IAFF Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Truglio, Assistant to the General President for Communications, Media, and Strategic Campaigns. Joining me today is my co-host, Doug Stern, Director of Strategic Campaigns and Media Relations for the International Association of Firefighters. Hi, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. Doug, you know, we have a special, special show today, and not just in terms of the importance of this subject for our members, but it also goes to show the value that the IFF provides to its members and the innovation that comes out of headquarters and the resources that we offer. And, and, that's, and that's about behavioral health. Over the last five to six maybe eight years or so, the IFF has really taken strides to focus on its members' health, not just physically in terms of muscle strains and pulls and injured necks and backs, but more now on the mental side of things and the behavioral side, helping fight behavioral health issues, addiction, things of that nature. So uh, we have two special guests today, and I'll kick it off. First off, ladies first, we have Lauren Cost. Uh, Lauren's a behavioral health specialist for the IFF, a licensed mental health clinician, and is doing tremendous work at the IFF in in helping our members stay healthy. Good morning.
1: Good morning.
0: Pleasure to have you. Our next guest is, uh, and I'm going to take a little liberty here, is uh, somebody that has been a, a true supporter of mine for, for almost 20 years and uh, has really helped me get to where I'm at. And I'm very appreciative. He's one of the smartest guys you are ever going to meet. And uh, the, the work that he has done for our international on a local state and international level is uh, beyond amazing. And now we're lucky to have him at headquarters. He's been with us for a little over a year. And uh, this gentleman's name is Will Newton. He is a director of occupational health and behavioral health services in our health and safety division.
2: Good morning, good morning. Thank you, Mark, you're too kind.
0: So as we mentioned, the IFF is always expanding its behavioral health services that is provided to members. You know, we have our Center of Excellence, which we're gonna talk about. We have peer support training programs. We, we do a lot of things for our members. But more importantly, I think lately, is the outbreak of COVID-19. And while health and safety has done a tremendous job of making sure we have all the health precautions out there that we need. We have a tremendous COVID-19 toolkit. Other divisions and headquarters are now working on how locals are going to survive financially in a, in a post-COVID-19 economy. You know, you're really focusing on the behavioral health issues that are out there. So since this has all started, what are some of the behavioral health issues that we're seeing in society and not just society, but our overall, our membership?
1: I think we're experiencing this pandemic in so many different ways right now from a behavioral health perspective. Uh, If I had to sum it up, I'd say some of the main behavioral health issues and emotional issues we're seeing are really just an explosion of anxiety, fear, crippling uncertainty about the future, for some anger, for other people, grief. The virus has really changed everything about how we as human beings work, educate, live, and just stay connected to each other. Seemingly overnight, the message from our leaders and public health experts has changed from don't panic, this is a disease that mostly affects the elderly or those with compromised immune states, to this is a deadly virus that can reach anyone and we should all be very concerned. So the threat of the virus, I think, has just left us all in a really heightened state of alert over the past couple months. I think everyone is feeling anxious about something while also trying to adjust to a really radically new way of life that leaves us feeling confined and isolated. I know parents, I'm a parent, um, you know, we're all feeling anxious about homeschooling our kids and also trying to get our own work done at the same time. Low-income families that rely on the public school system may be relying to Um, struggling to put food on the table, small business owners don't know when they're going to be able to reopen. And I also think that everyone uh, has at least a few loved ones that fall into that high risk immunocompromised group. So the fears about our loved ones contracting this virus are very valid and widespread. I think for IAFF members specifically, and other healthcare providers that are serving our communities on the front lines, there are a whole additional set of issues to consider that also trigger anxiety. So of course our firefighters and paramedics are used to risking their lives and safety every day when they go to work. And that's not anything new, but the sheer scope of the virus combined with the lack of PPE in some communities and the fact that the virus is still so new, I think really creates a unique situation and a very um, anxiety provoking situation that many of our members may not have countered in their careers before. So our members are struggling with questions like, do I have the right equipment to keep me safe on the job? Will I contaminate my family when I go home? Is my job secure and safe in this projected uh, economic recession that our country is going to face? So every day our members are being asked to do more with less, while also adapting to so many changing protocols. And I think together, all of these stressors really build up and can have a serious impact on our mental health and physical health.
3: Lauren, let me ask you real quick. You talk about the stressors of responding to the, the pandemic, the stressors of the financial impact. I know there's a lot of firefighters that are working with their families to try to not bring the virus home. It's hard not to bring the stress home with you, no matter what PPE you're wearing. What do you suggest for our members out there who are trying to cope as best they can with all this anxiety for them and their families. How, how, how best can they make this work for them?
1: So I think the good news is, is that there really are so many things we can do to boost our resilience and our capacity to cope during this time from a mental health perspective. But before any of that, we need to focus on physically protecting ourselves from transmission, using evidence-based precautions. So, Managing that fear and anxiety comes in part from doing what we know works to protect ourselves physically when we're out there. So this means, of course, being incredibly vigilant about handwashing at home and at the station, wearing a mask in public, keeping that social distance, of course, utilizing the necessary PPE on shift and following the proper donning and doffing procedures that are established by your department beyond some of these physical strategies however there really is a lot we can do to preserve our mental health so it's really important to find at least one or two sources of trustworthy news information and really try to stick to that so there's a lot of blurring today between the news and social media so it's really critical that we get our facts directly from the source and i think if you're someone that can get really sucked into the news cycle and push notifications on your phone it's a good idea to consider turning off those push notifications or setting a limit on how often you're going to allow yourself to check the news media because the news is such a major trigger for for so many of us um, for anxiety and it's also something that we have complete control over we don't have to be checking it a million times a day so
3: so 24 7 Twitter isn't my best way to get over this thing. is not no probably not a good strategy
1: no, no. So we need to try to scale that back a little bit. And, um, you know, every individual knows what's normal for them. But I like to say, slashing that by two thirds. So whatever amount you think is okay to be, you know, checking uh, news reports all day to really try to drastically cut that at least in half. Because I promise you the essential and important information that you need to know is going to get to you either way, regardless of if you're checking The phone a million times a day also just exercise so it's really important i mean we know this this is pretty basic information that we've always known that exercise not only improves our mood but boosts our immune system which is something that we all should be focused on right now staying physically healthy so finding something that you can do and stick with every day getting getting outside um, getting 20 minutes of some kind of physical movement every day whether it's using an app-based exercise at home or just getting out in your neighborhood.
3: That's great information for our members. You know, cutting the news consumption is something I never really thought of, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think everybody will test mark and I probably haven't considered that near as much as we should. Um, but so that's that's all really good stuff for our members. The stress I think a lot of us feel is we're at the firehouse and our families are at home. How do we best navigate that tricky situation with our spouse at home while we're at the firehouse on shift? You know, it's stressful for us to make these runs, but I guarantee the spouse at home is under just as much stress. How do we alleviate that so that we can have healthier relationships in the time that we do have at home?
1: So if you're a firefighter or a paramedic that has a partner at home, I think it's really important to communicate with that partner at whatever frequency you normally would. What I think is really challenging for some families right now is that while Our first responders are working their same schedule or things might be business as usual for them or they might even be working uh, more shifts the other partner is confined at home all day often trying to homeschool one or more kids and and is also teleworking themselves so in addition to worrying about the health and safety of their loved one on the front lines they're also managing all these factors at home so that's very stressful So, I think we really need to empower our spouses and partners that are at home to really set reasonable expectations for themselves and for their kids in terms of what they're going to be able to get done in the day. So, keeping a really flexible attitude and encouraging that partner to take breaks whenever they're able to. So, um, if there's an older child in the home that can keep an eye on the younger child while Um, the parent takes a few minutes of quiet time in the bedroom. Parents that are at home also should check in with other parents during the day who are in the same boat that they are in to get some validation on how challenging um, this is and, and really how unique this situation is. I think, you know, above all, it's just so important that we all remember that this is not going to last forever. I saw an interesting comic the other day, and it was a conversation between a mom and her older kids. And the mom was asking... Do you remember that the time of the coronavirus outbreak? Do you think you were damaged forever? And the kids said something like, Oh, yeah, you mean that time that we all got to stay home together, sleep in, play a lot of board games, and our family got to eat dinner together every night? That was kind of cool. So I think we need to, you know, as parents and families, just um, be kind to ourselves right now, be flexible, have reasonable expectations. And just also remember that this, that this might be a unique opportunity for some families um, to have some special time with their, with their family.
3: You hit my nail on the head with be kind to one another. I think right now it's so easy to be overstressed, even you know in the work atmosphere, everywhere else, but especially at home. Just that extra time that we take to walk in each other's shoes or just that kindness that we can pay one another really, I think, amplifies throughout. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, there's no playbook for this situation, so everyone um, is doing their best.
3: One of the things that we know is firefighters struggle more from alcohol and drug addiction, probably than a whole lot of other professions. How does the COVID nineteen pandemic and these stay at home orders really affect our members negatively as they're going through and trying to fight their addictions?
1: Yeah, this is a really challenging time for anyone in recovery from addiction. It just is. Stress levels are very high, liquor stores remain open, and most of us are coping with more unstructured downtime and and isolated time than we ever have. So, of course, these are all triggers for use and relapse. Members that are in recovery, especially early stages of recovery, like 90 days of sobriety or less, need to get very creative to stay connected and supported during this time. If you're someone that has a sponsor, establish a regular time, a consistent time of the day to check in over video chat. Whether you attend Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, or Smart Recovery Meetings, get to an online recovery meeting today. These organizations are hosting online meetings every day, multiple times throughout the day. There's always a meeting you can find to fit into your schedule. So that's one thing. Additionally, I think a little later in the podcast, we're going to talk about the online recovery meetings that the IFF is hosting, and these have become a really excellent way for IFF members to get connected, to support each other uh, during this time, and to also have some accountability, I think, for their own recovery and self-care that, that we all should be practicing right now. If you're in recovery and um, battling that addiction uh, and, and you find being home very stressful or being confined at home with family or spouse stressful, it's really important to communicate with your partner what you need. So don't expect your partner to know exactly what you need during this time. You have to tell them. Establish boundaries at home whenever you can. So it's okay to take walks outside to clear your head or to, you know, to take a few minutes of quiet time um, somewhere else in your house if you're able to. Lastly, just considering mental health treatment and counseling as well. So So if mental health treatment is normally a part of your self-care plan and a part of your recovery plan and and part of what keeps you on track with sobriety, it's really important that you continue that, that care right now. So ask your providers if they're able to do telehealth appointments, stay on top of any medication refills that you might need. And I think overall, just the most important thing is to remember that you're not alone. And there are others out there that are struggling just like you, but you have to reach out and ask for the help.
0: This is some great information, Lauren, and we appreciate you coming on today. You know, we've heard a lot about some new innovative ways during COVID-19 that people are working, that uh, people are just getting business done. And a lot of it's through video, and it's changing the way the workplace is, but it's also changing the way members get their health plans done. Uh, And I don't mean their health plans by health insurance. I mean, it's just their plans to take care of themselves. And part of this is called telehealth. So we've heard a lot about it. Uh, What is it? How is it used in the mental health field?
1: Yeah, um, so the expansion in telemental health services we've seen over the past couple of months has been truly unprecedented, and I think it will permanently change how we think about and access mental health care moving forward. Telemental health services are basically mental health services that are provided over the phone, a mobile app, or a secure interactive website. So these services were already gaining plenty of momentum before the COVID-19 pandemic for a couple reasons. One, just if you're comfortable with the technology or can get comfortable with it, it's incredibly convenient to participate in a therapy session from the privacy of your own home rather than having to drive across town. Two, um, for someone that is concerned about stigma or being seen in the waiting room of a therapist or doctor's office, Telehealth is a great option for someone that has these kinds of privacy concerns and doesn't need an intensive level of daily support such that you would get in a intensive outpatient program or a partial hospitalization program. So the convenience, um, the security, and the privacy is really appealing to some folks. If you're interested in telehealth, there are a couple resources that the IFF has made available that I would like to mention now if that's okay. First is just, if you go on the IFF uh, COVID-19 website, so iff.org slash coronavirus, and click on the behavioral health resources tab, we have a guide there, is telemental health right for me? So this is just a simple information guide about telemental health, and it also contains some questions to consider, specifically questions for clinicians. So kind of a clinician checklist that you could use when you're going around making phone calls to clinicians trying to find a provider to determine if that person is a good fit for you. Secondly, we also, through our partnership with Dr. Susie Gulliver, who is a clinical psychologist with the Warriors Research Institute in Texas, IAFF members now can access up to 18 visits of free telemental health services, which are exclusively for firefighters in the United States. So that's something that our US members can check out as well. And then lastly, our center of excellence, our treatment center, is currently offering telemental health services to members in Maryland, DC, and Virginia. So I think we're gonna come back to some other comments about the center later, but that's something I wanted to mention now as it's relevant to the telemental health piece.
0: Yeah, we're, we're definitely gonna hit on the center of excellence before we close out on this episode, but I, I do wanna to touch on how some IFF locals have, have not really been hit hard by this, but others have been hit really hard Uh, where some of our members are reporting that there's like death is everywhere in terms of the amount of casualties mounting up. You see some cities bringing in icebox trucks to just keep up with the the bodies that are coming in. And and that stuff does take a toll when you're running from CPR call to CPR call and and nothing is, no one's being saved out of it. So there's also the additional component to our members in the field that maybe they've lost somebody to this, uh, somebody they love, a brother or sister a parent for that matter. Uh, we've had oh, a horrible situation where our uh, members lost a child because of this. So how's the grieving process different during COVID-19? And what are some of the ways our members can honor their loved ones if traditional services aren't available?
1: You know, you're absolutely right. Everyone is, is grieving something or someone right now just because of the widespread impact of this virus. Um, over the weekend, the death toll in the United States Uh, reached over 50,000. So there's just so many of us that have lost someone that we care about. And especially within the fire service, I think honoring the deceased to their community and their department, their country, it is so deeply ingrained in this culture. So when most states still have restrictions on gatherings of 10 or more, our most basic rituals that we have as a society and within the fire service, to honor the deceased, have been really taken away or or majorly reduced. From a mental health perspective, without this ability to come together to mourn, to acknowledge the death, to memorialize that person, there really is a risk of complicated grief for some. So complicated grief is when a normal grief reaction doesn't resolve and can trigger an episode of clinical depression, which is a, a separate mental health disorder in its own right. So, I think when we're thinking about how to honor the deceased, how to begin that essential grieving process, we want to think about why do we have funerals? Why do we have memorial services in the first place? What are some of the functions that these rituals serve? Um, and I'll just mention them here briefly because these are the goals we need to find a way to achieve without the traditional services um, that we're used to. So, one, we need to find a way to acknowledge the reality of the deaf, Two, we want to find a way to express the emotions that are caused by the loss. Three, we want to receive and give support to others that knew the individual. We wanna find a way to remember or honor the deceased person. And then lastly, we wanna find a way to say goodbye to them. So both on an individual level and collectively as families or departments, we need to find a way to achieve these goals to honor the, the deceased member without the traditional in-person services and gatherings that we're used to. And it is possible. We just have to get creative. And we also have to accept that, of course, nothing is going to be the same as saying goodbye to your loved one at their bedside or in a traditional funeral service. The IFF has a a guide on on this topic, it's called coping with grief during COVID-19, how to say goodbye to loved ones. So that is on our toolkit website and um, that contains some other specific strategies on how to memorialize that individual, how to um, say goodbye when again, some of our, our typical rituals are not available right now. So that's something that members can check out.
3: Lauren, let me let me ask a follow-up to that. We talk about the resources, and we're going to get into the resources a little bit more, but you mentioned extended grief and as it leads into some clinical depression.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I, a lot of people may not realize that clinical depression is more than just being sad, right? You want to go over some of the, uh, the signs and symptoms that we should be on the lookout for to identify that so that we then can engage those resources to make it better?
1: You know, when we're talking about a normal grief reaction versus a grief reaction that has become complicated or delayed, there's definitely a few um, key differences. So in normal grief, there are intense periods of emotion, kind of waves of emotion that come and go versus in complicated grief, there's a feeling of sadness or despair that is truly persistent and intolerable. Um, And it doesn't really come in waves. It just kind of lingers around forever and, you know, as I said, it's, it's, it's pretty intolerable and makes it pretty difficult to function. Normally in grief, despite an individual's desire to withdraw, they do feel some comfort and benefit from being around other people. Yet in a complicated grief reaction, there's really nothing that makes that individual feel better, including the solace and support of other loved ones. Um, in a normal grief reaction, you know, there's kind of a mix of, of some good days, some bad days, as the person kind of gets back to what their new normal is going to look like. Versus in a complicated grief reaction or, or depression, days become mostly bad with very few good days um, in between. Um, daily functioning becomes really impaired in, in, in most areas. So, The person might be unable to to really function at work, to take care of things at home, may have a difficult time taking care of their family, and in some cases may begin to have thoughts, thoughts of death. Whereas in a a normal grief reaction, you know, the individual might have thoughts of death They're kind of sporadic and sometimes focused on um, a, a benign desire to reunite with the lost one. In a complicated grief reaction, if someone begins to have thoughts of death, you know, they might be tied to feeling personally worthless or just unable to cope with the severe pain they're experiencing. And so those are some of the the key differences that we look for in a complicated grief reaction. And any of those symptoms I just mentioned individually really would be a reason to talk to someone or seek out some kind of help. Thank
0: you very much, Lauren. I appreciate it. The insight you're providing today is uh, a tremendous.
2: She's doing a wonderful job, and um, Lauren, myself, and, and John Nemick, my deputy, we spent a lot of time together dealing with the center and our members as it relates to our behavioral health issues. As part of our team, we have another team member that I would be remiss if I didn't mention. Sarah Barnes is one of the other. Actually, she's the other behavioral health specialist. When we put this program together the uh, general president brought together uh, a makeup and the behavioral health side and provided us with two behavioral health specialists. And we just could not get any of the work done that we are challenged with doing and providing for our members without their uh, support and their expertise. We have a pretty good team, and I'm really glad to have both Sarah and Lauren as part of this team. And, And, of course, John. I don't want to leave my deputy out. So,
3: Will, question for you. The IFF has done a great job with peer support training. Your department has trained, last I saw it was like fifty-eight, fifty-nine hundred 59 hundred of our members to be peer support counselors. How is this crisis, this pandemic and all the shutdown of everything affecting our ability to provide those services and what are you guys doing to make sure that we get over that that hurdle to make sure that our our members who need it have what they need?
2: Yeah, this is especially challenging at this time You're correct, our peer support group out there, we have over 40 instructors. What We we really rely on the peer support teams out in the field to help accommodate responding or being dispatched or deployed whenever there is a catastrophe of of a natural disaster. But we rely on them also uh, whenever there is times that our members require assistance And we find, of course, that that's better received coming from a peer. You know, with with the challenge of being able to travel, with the challenge of being able to put together our classes, which are all uh, in person, we've been impacted with that. We have come up with what we're using as a virtual peer support deployment, where we're utilizing, uh, you know, pretty much the same venue today that we're using with uh, Zoom and other uh, telecommunication uh, platforms and tools to where we still can provide those services. Our classes are on hold right now, of course. We're still accepting classes. If you wanna to request to have a host, a, you know, a class of for your peer support team, we will schedule those off into the future. We're still taking those on board. But as far as being able to actually dispatch our peer support team, to a specific location, that's been a challenge. So we've met that by providing a, a virtual setting. Now, many of the trained uh, peers we have are in areas where a lot of our affiliate groups have peer support teams. So, you know, we're making weekly calls to those teams, keeping them abreast of what's going on and in our situation now that we're no longer able to be dispatched, but we're also uh, making sure that they're available to different neighboring communities that may not have a peer support team. So, it's been a challenge, but we're working through it. It actually opened up an opportunity. You know, until now, we'd never uh, conceived having a virtual peer support deployment.
3: There are a ton of resources that you guys are providing from peer support teams to telemental health. Lauren, you had mentioned the online recovery meetings, and I just want to make sure that we, we let members who need that resource know how they can get hold of that. What's the best way for them to take advantage of those online recovery meetings?
1: So if you go to the IFF COVID-19 toolkit website, which is org forward slash coronavirus, and if you click on the behavioral health resources tab, there is some information about these meetings listed there. Basically, you know, as Will stated, we know that peer connection plays such a critical role in supporting our our members, especially those that are in recovery from addiction issues, whether it's alcohol or substance use. So these are online meetings that are meeting Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday. Um, And they're an opportunity for IFF members that are coping with or in recovery from alcohol or substance use issues, Um, to come together, to connect each other, to support each other, um, and just hold each other accountable. And the meetings that we've had so far have have just been a great opportunity for firefighters uh, and paramedics specifically to come together and provide a unique um, level of support and understanding to one another when they can't get to their regular AA or NA meetings in the community, you know, due to the social distancing guidelines right now. So if you're someone uh, you know that's in recovery or um, if you're striving to live without alcohol or substances um, and you're interested in getting more support right now, this is something uh, that, that you should definitely check out. You don't have to participate with your video. If you don't want to, you can just listen in um, and do audio. It, it's totally up to you. And these meetings are absolutely confidential. The IFF doesn't track or monitor in any way or keep any recording of, of who participates. It's it's truly a confidential online meeting space.
0: Thank you, Lorna. And when we talk about behavioral health for our members, uh, you can't have that discussion without talking about the Center of Excellence. Center of Excellence is, I believe it's three years old now, and it has done a tremendous job helping our members get back on the front line so they can continue their careers. So how is our Center of Excellence responding to COVID-19, how is it adapting to these times in an operational sense?
1: So as we shared earlier, the IFF Center of Excellence does remain open and ready to serve IFF members. Um, the center, for if anyone who might not know, it's, the center is a residential treatment center for IFF members specifically that are struggling with addiction, post-traumatic stress disorder, and any other occurring mental health or behavioral health problems. So since the COVID-19 outbreak, the center has been continuously adapting uh, different patient screening protocols, contact precautions, isolation protocols that are recommended by the CDC. Um, And, you know, those guidelines have been adapted to keep the center opening right now because, um, you know, we know that while the COVID-19 outbreak continues, there are still so many, you know, that are suffering with their own mental health and substance use issues um, on their own, you know, that, that do need treatment. Well, I don't know if you wanna comment on any other specifics of any aspects of the safety um, protocol over there right now or anything that has changed about admissions.
2: The Center of Excellence, as Lauren stated, is open and operating. We have to keep in mind that with the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, those guidelines uh, are requiring us to do business a little different. You know, uh, the positive side is the center is now admitting clients every day a minimum of two we're working with individuals based on their uh, specific needs we have the challenge of being careful about admissions when it comes to certain hotspots but in all cases you're encouraged to call the admissions and get the help you need when you come onto campus everyone including the staff there uh, the temperatures checked twice daily uh, if staff leaves the campus, they're being checked with their temperature. PPEs are being worn by staff. Um, we have a, a one of the bunk bunkhouses, uh, the station houses, is used just for the first 48 hours of uh, a mini quarantine for the, anyone being admitted in. We're really being careful about allowing admissions if you're using mass. You know, we don't want you to use mass transit to get to the center, but we will work with you one thing that is in place now for all new admissions um, once you're medically cleared and you're in the center we're asking that you have a immediate discharge plan uh, and the center will go over that in great detail with you but none of these challenges have stopped us from getting admissions and allowing uh, our members to get the help they need we ask that you look at your individual situation we understand that you're out working or you're um, dealing with this at this time, but we ask that you call the admission center, go over your particular situation, and we're handling this on a case-by-case, call-by-call basis to make sure our members receive the uh, treatment uh, that's necessary.
0: So, well, in lieu of coming to the center, does the Center of Excellence offer telehealth services?
2: Absolutely. As Lauren stated uh, earlier and uh, part of one of the questions she was going over. That service is available now in DC, Maryland, and Virginia, for those that are in that area that can take part of that. And then we went over earlier the service that's available nationwide uh, for our members also at no charge.
1: And I would also uh, comment that the telehealth service that the Center of Excellence is providing is really designed for individuals that are not at at a non-intensive level of care. So for someone that can be supported through once or twice a week outpatient therapy, at that level of care, they're able to receive that through telehealth for members living in Maryland, D.C. or Virginia. So the admissions process and the intake screening is the same, um, regardless of if you're seeking admission for residential treatment physically at the center, or if you're interested in learning about the telemental health services, you would still call the main admissions line um, and go through the same screening process.
0: Will and Lauren, I greatly appreciate you joining us for this episode. And in closing, if there's a local leader out there, or just a member who needs help, or, or like I said, a local leader who needs help for one of its members, what's the best way to get a hold of IFF's um, behavioral health
2: services? Your first step as a local leader would be to review our uh, toolkit online, but you can also call the admissions and speak. Uh, uh, directly to a coordinator there. That's 855-900-8437. The unique part about our admission process is we have two firefighters there are on duty that uh, will handle our members when they call in and ask for assistance. And they will walk you through the entire process from your insurance verification, all the, the, the items that you'll need prior to getting to the center, everything that, that would be needed to get help coming into that center of excellence, the IFF center of excellence, uh, Cole and Richard will take care of for you.
1: I would also encourage affiliate leaders to visit the website for the center of excellence, which is IFFrecoverycenter.com. So the admissions numbers are on there are posted on there. There's also a lot of um, just good information on there as well, resources, question and answer guides, specifically for family members or spouses interested in sending a loved one to the center, uh, there's a weekly blog on there that has lots of good information. So that's definitely a resource for affiliate leaders to check out. Also, if they're interested in looking at the specifics of the infection control and safety plan related to COVID-19 at the center, um, that's also posted there on the website. If anyone is interested in just getting general behavioral health information or has questions um, or seeking any of the resources we, um, you know, have mentioned or referenced today with the COVID nineteen toolkit, they can also reach out to behavioralhealth@iaff.org, which goes to our on staff behavioral health specialists.
0: Well, Lauren, thank you for joining us today. I want to remind everybody about the IFF's coronavirus toolkit. It's www.iaff.org/coronavirus. Uh, check it out for the latest and greatest information that is that is out there to help keep you safe. So Doug, as we close out today, I think it's important to uh, really stress the importance of taking care of yourself mentally, not you personally, but just members in the field. I think the IFF has done a great job. We have tremendous resources available and I urge uh, our members to take advantage of it.
3: I think it really shows just how well thought out and how many resources this IFF has for our members. You know, when we say, health and safety it's not just burns like you said earlier it's not just broken bones it really is a holistic approach to keeping our members as as healthy as they can be and you know even things that we learned today about helping your family stay healthy through all this so i will lauren thanks so much for being here i think this has really been helpful for a lot of
0: our members that'll conclude this edition of the iff podcast i encourage you to check us out online we're available now in all of the uh, stores for download
3: Like we say every podcast, like, share, make sure that anybody you think that could use this information knows about it or give us feedback. We really want to know what you're thinking about how the
2: podcast is going. Thank you very much for listening and uh, stay safe out there.